With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. On this week's episode, we have three unsettling stories that are guaranteed to keep you up at night. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. The Midnight Cut by Fisherman Tales Her hair was different that first morning, uneven. Her long blonde curls, which usually fell to both shoulders, now only touched one. Oh my god, Abby, what did you do to your hair? My wife Erica said prompting me to look up from my bowl of oatmeal and see that our little girl's hair had changed. Abby stood groggily by the fridge, rubbing the sleep from her eyes. I just woke up. You cut your hair, Erica said. No, I didn't. Nick, look at her. I smirked. I see. I didn't cut my hair, Abby protested. Go look in the mirror, Erica said. Abby did as she was told and from the bathroom cried, My hair! And then she came rushing back with tears in her eyes. Somebody cut my hair! Erica and I exchanged glances and then I said to Abby, You really didn't cut it yourself. No. Erica put a comforting hand on Abby's back and said, Okay, okay, let's go fix it. Erica was able to even up Abby's hair and make her presentable enough for school. And after dropping Abby off at the school bus, came home and said, You think she's lying? Well, it wasn't you or me, so yeah, I said as I adjusted my tie. Did you check her room for hair? No. Erica gaped at me. Nick. I shrugged. What? This isn't forensic files. Our daughter cut her hair. It'll grow back. She's probably embarrassed, that's all. What if she didn't, though? I turned and smiled and ran my fingers through the thinning hair on my own head. Then I guess she takes after me. Erica frowned. Nick, that's not funny. She's six. I leaned forward and kissed Erica. I know, don't worry. I'm sure there's a lock of hair in the trash upstairs. We'll talk when I get home. Erica stepped aside and said, Okay, have a good day. That evening, I came home to find Erica still upset. There wasn't any hair, she said. Maybe she flushed it. Erica sighed. What if she's sleepwalking? She's never before. Well, she's only been walking for like five years. 
I smiled. True. We should get her tested. For sleepwalking? Yeah, you know, like a sleep study. She's fine, Erica. She cut it herself. You never tried to cut your hair as a kid. Erica shrugged. I guess. And it ended up looking terrible, didn't it? Erica smiled. Well, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing back then. Exactly. And I'm sure you were very embarrassed, just like Abby. Alright, fine, I get it. Just do me a favor and talk to her and make sure she doesn't do it again. I stood from the sofa and placed my hands over my heart and playfully announced, With God as my witness, our daughter will not cut another hair from her head, and then swiveled on my heel and exaggeratedly marched up the stairs. Godspeed, Sir Nick, Erica laughed. Abby was lying on her bed, flipping through a copy of Green Eggs and Ham when I walked over and stood in the doorway. Permission to enter, I said. Permission granted, she said, rehearsed and repeated time and time again. Well, thank you, my lady. I walked over and sat next to her on the bed. Ah, green eggs and ham, a fine piece of literature. You can stop talking like that. Talking like what? I said in the same tone. This is how I sound. Abby dropped the book onto her lap and rolled her eyes, and as she did, a mosquito landed square onto her forehead. Don't move, I said, and carefully moved my hand to her forehead and gently popped it. Ow, she cried. Why did you do that? I should have had a V8. What? I smiled and showed her the squashed mosquito on my hand. Ew, that was on me? Yep, he came by to check out your new haircut. Abby frowned. I don't like it. It'll grow back. I know, but still, it's ugly. I set her book on the nightstand and pulled her covers up to her chest and said, It's impossible for you to look ugly. Promise? Promise. I leaned over and kissed her forehead and then playfully grimaced and said, Ew, mosquito-y. Mabby giggled and I stood and noticed a warm breeze blowing from the nearby window. I walked over and saw it cracked open a few inches. Did you open your window? I asked. No. I peeked outside and seeing nothing but the orange glow from the neighbor's house lights, shut the window, locked it, and drew the curtains. Must have been mom, I said and walked to the doorway. Sleep tight. And don't let the mosquitoes bite. And don't cut your hair. Dad, I know I know, but still, don't. I won't. Very good, milady. I said in my tone that she hated. Abby sighed and I followed up with. Love you. Um, love you too. I found Erica already in bed and after brushing my teeth, joined her and asked, Did you open Abby's window? Uh, I don't think so, why? It was open. 
I don't know why I would have. It's so hot out. I sat there for a moment thinking and then said, Well, good night, and then kissed Erica and turned off the lamp. Nick, wake up. I opened my eyes to see Erica standing over me. I rolled over. It's Saturday. It happened again. I rolled back over. What? Her hair, it's been cut. I sighed and kicked off the covers. How bad this time? Bad. We walked over to Abby's bedroom. She was sitting on the bed, the left side of her hair cut to above her ear, the other side at yesterday's chin length, and she was sobbing. I walked over and said, Abby, what happened? I didn't do it. Well, who did? I don't know. Well, somebody had to have done it, and it wasn't mom or me. Abby pounded on the bed and screamed, It wasn't me. I looked at Erica and then she said, We're getting her tested. Fine. I stood and nodded at the doorway and Erica met me in the hall. Are the scissors still in her bathroom? No, I took them out yesterday and I hid them. She must have another pair. I stared past Erica and she asked, What? I pointed at the wall and she turned around. Oh, Nick, squash it before it stings one of us. A wasp. I stepped into Abby's room and pulled the curtains. And sure enough, the window was open. I feel like we're using her as bait. Erica said she stood at the bottom of the ladder, watching me install a camera in the corner of Abby's room. No, we're going to figure out which one of us is sleepwalking. Abby said she doesn't have another pair of scissors, and she doesn't know where you hit the others, so it's got to be one of us. You don't know where I hid them either. I didn't answer, and I kept working on the camera. Wait, you think that I'm the sleepwalker? I didn't say that. I'm the only one who knows where the scissors are, so if you don't think it's Abby, then you must think that it's me. I looked at Erica. Let's be honest, you're the only one here who went to cosmetology school. What's that supposed to mean? It makes sense that you would cut hair while sleepwalking. I'm not a sleepwalker. We'll see. If anybody's sleepwalking, it's you. I sighed. Jesus Christ, Erica. First, you were saying that it's Abby and now it's me. You talk in your sleep sometimes. Well, talking and walking are two different things. It's more than I've ever done in my sleep. I tightened the final screw and then stepped down the ladder. Well, we're going to find out now, aren't we? Erica shook her head. Whatever, I just don't want this to go on any longer. Abby's running out of hair. The following morning, Erica and I got out of bed together and crept into Abby's room and carefully pulled the covers from her face. Erica cried out and put her hand to her mouth. Patches of hair were missing from the left side of Abby's head, and the window was open. Erica and I rushed back to our bedroom and grabbed my phone and played the recorded footage from the previous night. For the first few hours, Abby was sleeping, 
occasionally tossing and turning, but nothing out of the ordinary. We fast-forwarded further into the night, and then there was a slight movement by the window. The curtains fluttered as if from a light breeze, and then an arm extended through the curtain and felt around the surrounding area, and then disappeared back outside. A second or two passed and a head poked through, followed by a torso and then legs, and then in almost complete silence, a woman in her entirety had slithered into my daughter's room. Erica gasped and squeezed my arm. Next the woman stood. The footage was black and white so it was difficult to determine the exact color of her hair, but it was dark and straight and fell to her waist. Her outfit, some sort of long gown, was equally dark, and her feet looked to be bare. She sidled over to Abby and stood staring at her, and then reached into her gown and took out a bottle and a rag. She unscrewed the top of the bottle and pressed the rag to it, tilted it, and then screwed the lid back on and returned the bottle to her gown. And then she leaned over Abby and held the rag over her mouth for several seconds. She returned the rag to her gown and took out a pair of scissors and began cutting. When she finished, she put the scissors away and stood with the hair that she had cut from Abby in her palm. And then she ate it. She shoved my daughter's stolen curls into her mouth and chewed. And when she had finished, she licked her hand clean of any remaining hairs. Then she turned from Abby and walked to the window and then stopped. She turned her head and looked directly at the camera. Her dark hair hung over her face. She stepped toward the camera and passed it, and into the hall. I fast-forwarded the footage. Every minute up to the moment Erica and I checked on Abby, the woman never went back. Erica, I whispered. She might still be in the house. We both turned and sprinted down the hall yelling for Abby, and when we made it to her room we found her lying beneath the covers asleep. We both breathed a sigh of relief and stepped into her room. Abby, wake up! Erica sat and pulled the covers away. God! She gasped and stumbled backward. The woman was lying in the bed, chewing blonde hair poking from between her lips. Call the police. I told Erica and tossed her my phone as I rushed over and yanked the woman from the bed and pinned her to the floor. Where's my daughter? The woman kept chewing. Behind me, Erica was on the phone, frantically crying to the dispatcher. She did something to our daughter. Please, you have to come now. No, we don't know who she is. Please, just hurry. Erica, check the footage, I said, and then turned my attention back to the woman and said, Tell me where she is. The woman stopped chewing, stared into my eyes, and then opened her mouth to reveal a wet clump of hair on her tongue. I wrapped my hands around her throat and squeezed. You psycho, I yelled. Nick, Erica gasped. She's in the closet. I spun around in time to see Erica yank the closet doors open and see Abby blue in the face, hanging limp from a tie knotted around her neck. At that same moment, I felt a sharp pain in my side and looked to see that the woman had stabbed me. 
I cried out in pain and pushed off her as she pulled the scissors from me. And then she quickly leaped to her feet and sprinted for the open window and vaulted out. Abby, Erica cried, having gotten her untied and on the floor. I crawled over and reached a bloodied hand to Abby's neck. She's got a pulse, I said and saw the color returning to her face. She's breathing too. In the background, we could hear approaching sirens. Abby and I both made a full recovery. From the footage we saw, the woman had crept into Abby's bedroom after Erica and I had gone back to our room that morning. Abby was still asleep at the time and the woman had chloroformed her again and then cut her hair and dragged her to the closet and then hung her with a tie that she had taken from my closet, most likely during the night. The window, as it turns out, never actually locked. It was a faulty design that we were unaware of and never thought to check. The good news is that Abby's hair has grown back, as I assured her that it would. We've also moved to a new house, one with windows that properly lock. The bad news, however, is that the police never found the woman. They searched the house for DNA and found some but couldn't match it to anyone. Nobody recognizes her either, from what they've told me. But she's out there and she has her scissors with her. And it's only a matter of time before she sneaks through somebody else's window and cuts their hair. And eats it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Relationships can often be very difficult to navigate. For my significant other and I, communication is key. And understanding that just because things aren't always easy doesn't mean that it's wrong. The best relationships come from both people being willing to put in the time to make things work. A therapy can be a place to work through the challenges that you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, at work, your significant other, or anyone. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it lets you take the time to self-reflect and truly understand what you're feeling. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MrCreeps today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MrCreeps. The walls of our basement used to talk to me growing up. By Richard Saxon I lay weeping in bed, trying my best to keep my sobs at an absolute minimum, lest I wake up my father to suffer another beating. Only moments prior, I had been scratched badly by the satanic spawn that we called a cat. Not to give anyone the wrong idea. Even at the age of four, I loved animals, but... That creature was something else entirely, scooped out from my deceased uncle's apartment, feral and full of hatred. At the smallest provocation, it would dig its claws into our skin, which was of course the reason why my father forced it to sleep in my room. Afraid that my blood would stain the sheets, 
I snuck down into the kitchen to wash myself off as quietly as I could. I shivered as I passed the basement door, hearing the familiar groans emerging from the depths. My mother had blamed the sounds on the wind, but without any windows or even a faint draft pulling through, something about it was clearly wrong. The cat rushed past my legs, hissing as it rushed under the sofa. I hated that creature and the connection to my father it represented. Ignoring it, I proceeded into the kitchen. I turned the tap just enough for a few drops of water to pour out onto my dripping wound. It burned as I cleaned it, but I couldn't even let out a mild yelp in pain. I couldn't risk waking my parents up. I carefully tore a piece of paper towel from its roll, checking behind me in fear. And then I heard a sound emerging from the entrance, sending a wave of panic down my spine as I worried that I might have woken my parents up, despite my best efforts. But the fear was immediately replaced by relief, as I realized it was just the basement door creaking open. With a slightly damaged frame, it tended to slide open at random points throughout the day and night. Small taps echoed through the living room as I heard our cat rush down into the basement. The last time it had been let in there, it somehow broke its leg on the way down. Another event where fault was placed in my hands. If my father somehow figured out that I had let him down there again, he would know that I had let it out at night which meant that I would pay for it in the morning. So, as much as I hated the creature, I had to venture down into the basement and retrieve him before he managed to hurt himself. I hid the paper towel in my pajama pant pocket, leaving no trace behind as I followed the little beast down into the basement. As I reached the door that stood ajar, I could hear him hissing from the bottom of the staircase. A part of me worried that he might scratch or even bite me again, but I would rather suffer a thousand cuts from his claws than another beating from my so-called guardian. I proceeded, taking single, slow steps down the creaky staircase. The cat had fallen silent, but a new sound had taken his place. A bizarre, squishing sound, akin to meat being pushed through an old hand-driven grinder coupled with heavy breathing. Still, I continued too worried about the consequences if I refused. Cracking sounds followed, crunch after crunch echoing up the stairs, and then stepping on a rotten piece of wood, the step broke, sending me pumbling down the rest of the stairs, where I roughly landed on the concrete floor below. And by then, I couldn't hold back the tears anymore. In a mixture of pain and fear, I started to sob, crying loudly in the darkness, alone in the night. My only solace was that the sounds in the basement might not be making up to the bedroom where my parents slept. Maybe I would even be allowed to weep in peace. But reality begged to differ, as a presence in the darkness had awoken. Why do you cry, child? A deep, raspy voice asked. I turned around, trying to figure out where the sound had come from. It hadn't been either of my parents, I knew that much. Yet it felt oddly familiar. Here, it let out in a mere whisper. The sound had come from a wall in the darkest corners of the basement, 
one just barely touched by the faint moonlight daring to shine in from the living room above. Only then did the metallic stench and scent of rotten meat hit my nostrils, causing me to recoil in disgust. On the floor lay a pool of fresh blood, shining gently in the dimmest of lights. It had come from our cat, I could gather that much, but the rest of his body was nowhere to be seen. Where's Smokey? I asked with a trembling voice. Mew cared for the small creature, the voice asked, seemingly curious. No, I hate him, I let out in protest, almost angered by the mere sentiment. Then why do you want to find it? I have witnessed the pain it has caused you. I have heard your cries. He belongs to my dad, I explained. He'll be angry at me. I apologize, the voice said. I require sustenance. Though young, I was well familiar with the concept of death, and with a pool of blood before me, and its stench following, I realized there was no turning back. I started crying again, knowing how badly I had messed up. What am I going to do? I sobbed to no response. Who even are you? Hmm, who I am, it repeated. I do not know. The peculiar statement somehow set a stop to my whines. It was such an odd concept in my young mind that a sentient being able to talk didn't have an identity that it was aware of. You don't know, I asked. No, who are you? It asked in return. I'm Helena. I introduced myself. Why don't you have a name? I was never granted a name. Why not? No person has ever acknowledged my presence. I have been alone for millennia. My childhood mind was easily distracted. Presented with such a unique, bizarre situation, I could refocus my mind away from the horrors that would undoubtedly await me in the morning. How about I name you then? I asked, starting to feel almost comforted by the being's unexplained presence. What name will you bestow upon me? Hmm. I let out as I mulled over the best name a four-year-old could conjure. How about Leo? I suggested, stealing the name from one of my favorite cartoons. Yes, Leo will suffice, the voice said. And that night, an extraordinarily bizarre friendship began. Living far out in the countryside with close to no other kids my age, I really hadn't grown up with anybody other than the occasional stray animal wandering onto our land. So having somebody that I could talk to without being fearful made me feel the first ounce of happiness that I had experienced during my albeit short stay on Earth. Oddly enough, when providing an excuse to my parents that our cat had escaped through a window at night, I wasn't punished all too severely. In fact, they both seemed relieved that the monster had vanished from our house, and the traces of blood tainting the basement had all but vanished as night faded in the morning light. Following that event, I took it upon myself to feed Leo. I would usually go down into the basement at night and spend a few hours after dark talking to Leo. 
I fed him whatever scraps of meat we had left behind in the fridge, which he appreciated as he told me stories of a world that I hadn't the faintest chance of comprehending. I quickly learned that only flesh could sustain him. He explained to me that the fresher the meat was, the better, but to get a hold of the food I had to be sneaky. Usually I would await my father's return from work. He would always stop by the barn for a few drinks and would end up getting quite drunk. I could smell the alcohol reeking off of him as he stumbled into the living room, only to pass out onto the couch. Once I could hear him snoring, I would sneak into the kitchen, put some crumbs on a plate which I placed next to him on the sofa, and feed the rest to the kind beast in the basement. Doing that, my father would usually wake up in a drunken slumber in the middle of the night, thinking that he had mindlessly consumed it before passing out. For three years, this strategy worked. My father still remained the scum of the earth that he had always been, but he remained none the wiser about the fact that I had a friend living within our basement walls. Over the years, he had even begun to grow. His voice had gotten more prominent. Even a mouth had formed in the walls, one filled with jagged and rotting teeth. Every day that I would feed him, a task growing progressively more difficult as he grew larger. Inevitably, the food stolen from our fridge would be too much. Just before my ninth birthday, Leo had asked for a larger meal. I stole the majority of a leftover rotisserie chicken, but as I stumbled back to the basement, the snores emerging from my father's mouth abruptly stopped. What are you doing, you little piece of crap? He asked angry at me before he even realized what was going on. But then he saw the chicken obviously thinking that I was about to steal it for myself. What the heck do you think you're doing? I, I wasn't, I stuttered. What followed was the same cascade of drunkenness that I knew all too well, followed by a few slaps to the face, leaving behind red marks and a black eye. I took it all knowing there was nothing I could say to justify my actions, knowing that I was too weak to defend myself, and knowing my mother feared the man just as much as I did. I was alone and left with no one in the world to protect me. No one except for Leo. Why are you crying? Leo asked as I greeted him that night. What happened? My dad, I began. Unable to continue between sobs, I couldn't get you the food, I'm sorry. Let me punish him, Leo said, a suggestion that I had heard before but one that I had rejected on several occasions. I can't, I repeated. Why would you defend a man who has caused you nothing but suffering since the day you emerged into this world? Leo asked, almost sounding disappointed. For a moment, I wondered what our lives would be like without him. If my mom and I could finally find some semblance of peace without that monster looming above us. Maybe I had just finally reached my breaking point. Or maybe I was starting to lose empathy as I aged. Whatever the case, on that day, I finally agreed to let the wall in our basement take care of our greatest problem. How? I asked. With that, we formed a simple yet effective plan. 
but making my father into the basement itself remained our biggest hurdle. It had been moldy and wet for decades and had even been left empty since before I was born. My dad had no reason to descend these stairs unless I tricked him, that was. In addition, I had to do it on a day that my mother wasn't home. Months would pass before the opportunity arose, but when it did, I quickly set the plan into action. As usual, my father returned late at night from the bar and I patiently waited for him to pass out in a drunken stupor. Once he was fast asleep, I took the few toys that I had, strewn them across the living room floor with a trail leading down into the basement. I could have just hidden down there loudly announcing my presence, but though I knew what had to be done, I wasn't brave enough to witness the act itself. All I needed was for the man himself to think I was down there. Sure enough, as soon as he awoke, still slightly drunk, he noticed the mess on the floor. Calling my name to receive no response, he walked along the trail, kicking and breaking the toys as he passed. All the while, he demanded I show myself. What he didn't realize was that I was hiding in the untouched guest room, peeking out through a crack in the door. I stared out in anticipation, only to notice my father hesitate as he reached the top of the basement stairs. Melina, he said with a slightly softer voice. Just come up, I'm not mad at you. I just want to talk. He almost spoke with care, too afraid to venture down into the basement, as if he too knew that something beyond his comprehension lurked down there a being that just didn't belong to our world. Come on, I'm waiting, he went on. In response, a quiet laugh emerged from the basement. While it wasn't mine, it didn't sound like Leo's either, as if he had attempted to mimic me. In fact, I wasn't sure that I had ever heard my friend laugh before, nor did I know that he was capable of humor. But still the laugh sent my father back into a blind rage. Screaming my name, promising another beating, he went charging into the basement. In the clear, I rushed out from my hiding spot and jammed a chair under the door handle. He was trapped. There was no way out. What the heck? My father began, but his voice quickly turned to blood-curdling screams as the wall got to work on him. His bones cracked and his flesh was torn to shreds as the man screamed in absolute agony. I covered my ears, almost daring to regret an act that I could never undo. Though I held no love for the man, it pained me to hear him helplessly beg for his life. But as soon as the yells had begun, they turned to incomprehensible gurgles as blood filled his lungs. Before long, silence once again filled the empty house and a sense of uneasy peace filled my soul. Dad? I called out, checking if I would get a response. Leo. I went on, but still nothing. Afraid of the sight that would meet me in the basement, I remained upstairs, sitting in front of the door half expecting something terrible to emerge from the dark. Hours passed by and my mother eventually returned home from another night shift, finding me on the couch as pale as a sheet. Where's your father? she asked, too tired to notice the rough state that I was in. I don't know. I responded meekly, sure that she would figure out what I had done. 
but all I got in return was an unenthusiastic, huh, before she went to sleep. Even when her husband failed to show himself in the morning, she didn't seem to care all that much, as if his absence didn't bother her. While it wasn't unusual for him to stay out drinking until the middle of the night, he almost always showed himself in the early morning hours. A couple of days turned into a week and my father still hadn't showed up. Though suspicious at first, my mom started to appear more at ease, almost daring to smile. It wasn't until the second week before we finally decided to inform the police. Not because we missed him, but because it would seem suspicious if we didn't. It wasn't the first time they had been to our house, seeing how the man treated us and all. But as soon as they appeared, he would be a model citizen, and he would always find a way to make mom forgive him. Without charges to press, we were left to suffer alone. No proper investigation was ever launched. It was simply assumed that the man had abandoned us, a situation that suited us well. During the next few years, my mom and I would finally get a chance to bond, and my life started improving. Bit by bit, the memory of a nightmarish childhood began to fade. Of course, Leo remained my secret friend up through my formative teenage years, but with his appetite ever growing, feeding him had become somewhat of a problem. Where scraps and raw meat had once sufficed, he now wanted fresh kills. I resorted to getting a part-time job at a local butcher, sneaking out what little that I could, and using the rest of my salary to buy gamed meat from hunters and farms. For a short while, the meat sufficed. It could sustain the growing bean in our basement. For every day that passed, more and more distinctive features formed. Arms, fingers, claws. Leo kept getting bigger, almost taking up the entirety of the basement wall. And as time passed, it became abundantly clear that my efforts alone wouldn't be enough to satiate his ever-growing hunger forever. I require sustenance, he begged. I just fed you, I argued back. More, he almost yelled, his voice echoing through the basement. By that time, eyes had formed alongside the mouth, and spikes emerged around the wall, forming a primitive facial structure. What do you want then? I don't really have any money left. I long for the taste of living flesh, he said. Pink, warm skin, trembling muscles, soft fat. You're talking about... I began not daring to finish the sentence. Humans, he went on, finishing the thought for me. I can't, I'm not a murderer. Hearing my mother parking her car outside, I ended the argument there and I rushed upstairs. Leo had been my guardian for all these years saving me from my father. But I wasn't about to murder anybody for his sake. Not again. For the next few days, I would toss the meat down into the basement without talking to him, upset with his evolving desires. I started spending more time in my room, far enough away not to hear his soft whispers. But ignoring the creature would not be an option, as one day while chatting with a friend on the phone... I heard a voice calling for me from downstairs. Helena, 
My mom called. I ran down to check on what she needed, and I was met by a puzzled expression on her face. What is it? I asked. Oh, nothing, she said. I just thought that I heard you calling from the basement. Did you want to speak to me or something? Knowing that I hadn't said anything, it didn't take me long to realize who exactly had called her name from the basement. But not willing to tell her the truth, my thoughts raced to come up with a suitable excuse. Um, I was just talking on the phone. You must have misheard me. I lied poorly, but she believed me, having no reason to mistrust me on such a pointless lie. That night, I waited for my mother to fall asleep, before I ventured back down into the depths of the basement. My heart was filled with a mixture of fear and anger. The creature that I had once named a friend had attempted to eat my mother. You return, Leo said softly, almost surprised at my presence. You tried to kill my mother, I said, jumping straight to the point. I must consume flesh, he said, sounding almost weak, his words quieter than usual. I am famished. I've been feeding you the same things as I always have been ever since we met. It no longer satiates me. I require unspoiled flesh. I require living meat. No, I said firmly. I'm not doing this anymore. You would allow me to perish. I will keep feeding you animal meat, but I'm not going to kill anyone for your cravings, and I can't forgive you for trying to kill my mother. Leo didn't respond, seeming to contemplate my harsh words. I'd already decided to end our friendship, but I wasn't ready to let him die. So, I would keep tossing down freshly hunted game purchased from local farmers and hunters without entering the basement. That way, I could avoid engaging in any sort of conversation with the beast. Only then could I live with a semi-clean conscience. For months and years, I fed the beast, never speaking a single word. During the nights, I could hear him groan and beg for flesh, but I refused to listen. It was a miracle that my mother never caught on, but in her advancing years, her hearing had started to fade, and her mind with it. Though she had barely entered her fifties, the years of alcohol to deal with the trauma caused by my father, they had worn on her soul, and though I tried to get her help, she never truly recovered. And then one day, as I returned home from work in the evening, my mother was no longer there to greet me. I found her body in her bed and she had passed away while taking a nap. There she lay looking as if she were just sleeping, but entirely different, lighter, tired, absent. I did what I could in a futile attempt at resuscitation, but her body had already gone cold. There was nothing left to be done. It was determined during the autopsy that she had passed peacefully in her sleep. Her heart had grown tired and simply ceased to beat. I could take comfort in the fact that she never saw it coming, and that she at least experienced a handful of semi-happy years before leaving this world. But with her gone, I was truly alone. Another year passed and I remained alone in an inherited house that I knew wasn't truly empty. Once I entered college, I even started dating, 
meeting a guy, Martin, who seemed to tick all the boxes. Time passed, and though the memories lingered, they appeared as painless scars, serving as little more than reminders of old wounds sustained. For a while, we were happy. He had just finished college by the time that I entered my freshman year. I was 19, and he was 24. He was a private man who moved here from a couple of states over, finding work at a local bar. He never talked about his past, nor why he had left everything he knew behind, which should have been the first sign of things to come, had I only been that wise. Growing up, seeing my mother get hit by my father, I always judged her for choosing a man who could hurt her like that. Though I felt guilty, I couldn't help but pity her for staying. I never thought in a million years that I would be stupid enough to fall into a similar trap. Oh, how naive I was. As it turns out, mistakes can cross the boundaries of generations and can be repeated no matter how careful you think you are. Martin first hit me during what felt like an innocuous argument. He didn't even seem that angry, so I never saw it coming. To in shock, I couldn't even respond. A man that I thought I could spend the rest of my life with had just put his hands on me, but I was in too deep to just leave. It started with outbursts like these, followed by profuse apologies and love bombing. Then the cycle would repeat. Step by step, my freedom was taken from me. I couldn't dress the way that I wanted. I couldn't spend time alone with the few friends that I had. At some point, I wasn't even allowed to leave the house without supervision. It happened so fast that I almost suffered whiplash. But before I knew it, he had taken full control over my life. The man who had entered my house might as well have been a reincarnation of the man that I called father. No sooner had that realization hit me that I decided that I wasn't going to take this lying down. I started to form a plan of escape. I still had some money from my inheritance left. Not enough for a luxurious lifestyle by any means, but enough to leave town and never look back. Martin could have the house for all that I cared. A place haunted by decades of pain, cursed beyond the ability to be cleansed. I just needed to find the perfect time for my escape. I chose the date and waited for Martin to leave for work, and I started packing my bags without hesitation. He never returned home early since he didn't have a flexible work schedule, nor did he call in sick, enjoying the attention that he got from drunk girls at the bar. If only they knew the monster that he truly was. But as I tore down the shelves in a frantic attempt at making a swift escape, something caught my eye, a reflection bouncing off a small glass surface a camera hidden among my personal effects in my bedroom, pointing directly at my bed where my bags lay half-packed. Without having to ask, I knew that Martin had been watching me from afar, which meant that he would be back home any minute. 
I decided to drop the rest and leave with whatever I had already packed. But as I ran for the door, Martin entered with a knowing and furious expression plastered right across his face. You think you can just leave? He yelled as he pulled the bag from my hands. I tried to push him away and though I was no weakling by any means, he was far larger. I didn't stand a chance. How do you not understand this? He said as he grabbed my arm and started pulling me back into the house. You belong to me. I continued to fight back to the best of my ability, twisting around, punching him all to no avail. Then with one final push, he pulled my shoulder joint straight out of its socket. Let me go, I half demanded, half begged between screams of agony. Then, not sure where to put me, he opted for the room closest to our struggle, the one most easily locked up. The basement, a room that I knew lay barren, but one that had never been empty. He ripped open the door and pushed me inside, letting me roll down the stairs towards the bottom, where I remained on the floor, battered, bruised, and with a dislocated shoulder. I didn't want to hurt you, but you really left me no choice, he said before closing and locking the door behind him. I was trapped. Lying on the floor, I just cried, like I had so many years prior the first time that I met Leo at the ripe old age of four. And just like then, the beast answered, ready to hear my pleas for help. Why do you cry, child? The voice called out, weaker than I had ever heard it before. I'm not a child anymore, I responded and still nothing has changed. But you are still so little. I can help you, Leo went on, a suggestion that I was all too familiar with. Not this time, I replied. I can't keep fighting anymore, just let it be over. No, Leo exclaimed much louder than before. It is not your time. You must continue your journey. Why? I asked. What's the point? Your purpose is yet to be revealed. What do you mean? Keep fighting. I can't. You will. I'm too weak to fight him. You are not alone. Why would you help me after I abandon you? My voice trailed off. Before Leo could respond, the door shot open and Martin stumbled in a gun in his hand, one that I didn't even know that he owned. I hate that it had to come to this, he began as he walked down the stairs, but I can't exactly keep you down here forever. This'll be easier on the both of us. With one arm refusing to cooperate, I pushed myself up and crawled towards the basement wall, knowing fully well that I had no chance of outrunning a bullet. But Martin would want to make it personal. He wouldn't attack from a distance. Sure enough, he descended all the way down the stairs, walked up to me with an empty look in his eyes. He didn't attempt to further explain himself, nor did he offer a chance for reconciliation. 
In his mind, I had betrayed him, and that was all that it took. He lifted the gun, pointing it directly at my head, as if preparing to take out a rabid dog. I could only close my eyes and wait for him to pull the trigger, but such mercy would never come. Instead, the silent atmosphere was shattered by Martin's blood-curdling screams as his flesh was being torn from bone. I could feel his blood splatter across my face, but that time for once, I decided not to hide from an act that I had partially been responsible for. Though his demise was the consequence of his own actions, I felt like I deserved some credit. I opened my eyes and saw for the first time how the creature in the wall consumed its prey. Dozens of arm-like appendages extended from the wall, tearing into him with long claws that tore through his skin, his fat muscle as if they were butter. All he could do was scream until his chest was torn open, and blood started to fill his lungs. What little remaining of his rapidly expiring body was incorporated into the wall, consumed by my guardian. And then the world fell silent once more and I was saved. You are safe, Leo said, softly breaking the silence. I know, was all that I could respond. Thank you. Thank you for always being there when I need you. Our bond will never break and because of you, I am at last satiated. But this does not mark the end of our coexistence. This is just the beginning. What do you mean? I asked. Later, little one. Now, I must rest. And with that, Leo fell asleep. A rest I granted him as I attempted to process all the horrors that I had experienced since my childhood to this day. That day, I decided that I would grant my savior whatever he desired be it the flesh from living people or revenge on his enemies. I would let no innocent person suffer, nor would I choose at random. I would actively seek out those deserving of a gruesome death and lure them to my house, where Leo could feast. I knew that it would be no easy task, but I would do it for him. Throughout my entire miserable life, he had been my one constant, the only presence that had accompanied me. I would do whatever it took. But as I descended the basement on the following day to let Leo in on my plan to serve him, I was met with an empty wall. Where Leo had once lived was a large indent in the basement's foundation, as if he had just upped and left. A sadness emerged in my chest, as though the creature had abandoned me. But just the previous day, he had promised that we were interconnected. It couldn't be a lie. Yet as the weeks passed, the basement remained silent. Even as I tossed down whatever meat I had in the fridge, it just lay on the floor to rot. Leo, whatever he had been, was truly gone from my life. And then reports of missing people started showing up on the news, mostly vagrants or criminals on the run from the police, people that wouldn't quickly be missed, 
but in a large enough number that people started to notice. They would just vanish with no trace. No bodies were ever found, nor did they show up in any other cities or even states. Week by week, the reports kept getting more frequent, and I knew exactly who was responsible. Leo's hunger had kept growing even after he had emerged from my basement, a lust for flesh that could not be truly satiated. Though the people didn't necessarily deserve to be consumed, I knew there was nothing in this world that could stop him. But even if I could, I had sworn my loyalty to him. It was a thought that followed me even as I slept in my bed at night. I wondered how far he would go before he had finally consumed enough, and if the people killed actually deserved it, or if they were innocents found at the wrong place at the wrong time. Just as I lingered between the world of the waking people and the realms of sleep, a voice snatched me back to attention, one all too familiar. Hello, little one. Leo spoke softly through the dark, closer than I had ever heard him. Shooting up in bed, I saw a dark silhouette standing in the dark, nine feet tall hunched over to prevent his head from hitting the ceiling. Several arms stretched from his torso, ending in razor-sharp claws, and the stench of rotten flesh emanated with his raspy breath. Leo? I asked. Yes, he responded. I have come for you. It is time. Time for what? Time to fulfill your purpose beyond this realm, he said. What purpose? I stuttered. This world no longer belongs within the reach of mankind's filthy grasp, but you are different. Come with us, and I promise you safe passage to the realm of Yrkela. No one will ever hurt you again. What about the people living here? You no longer need concern yourself with their well-being, but you must come with us now. I just stared speechlessly at the creature who had grown up calling Leo, only to now realize that he was something else entirely, spawned from a world that I had no concept of, one focused only on conquering the world that I had grown up in. But as he patiently awaited a reply, I thought back to all the pain and suffering that I had endured, the false kindness that I had been given, only to face years of abuse. If this was the world that I had, I wasn't sure it was the one that I wished to protect. What do you say, little one? And with that, my purpose became clear. The entirety of my span in this realm, the lessons that it had taught me, the people that I had to endure. I knew exactly what I had to do. I was taken to a prison run by demons. There are rules to survive. Written by CIA Herb. I'd been in and out of prisons and jails ever since I was 17. I thought that I had seen it all. Brotherhood members attacking guards, wars, escapes, and attack. I saw many things that still give me nightmares to this day. McDonald, 402202, the guard barked out. I jumped off the thin mattress under me, exhaling a whiff of stale air. 
I looked through the bars seeing correctional officer Shay. Shea was a morbidly obese man with a penchant for being loud and lazy. I had seen a member of the Bloods punch him straight in the nose before, a scene that I still remembered with as some humor. Shea had crumpled like wet paper on the floor, screaming and crying as more CLs ran over and tackled the inmate. Yeah, I asked. Shea handed me a sheet of paper. He regarded me with his gray, colorless eyes. Congratulations, you're being transferred. Pack up your stuff. This is your last day at Springfield Correctional Center. Now you might think that I would be happy to get a transfer. The Springfield Correctional Center was after all a dump. The food was terrible and always cold, and the place always smelled like bleach and chemicals. And at night it got so cold with only my flimsy sheet that I often woke up shivering. The building was nearly a century old and the fact that it was still functional at all was a miracle in itself. But to be honest, I wasn't thrilled about the transfer. I had made friends here and knew the lay of the land. I didn't have to worry about getting jumped or attacked in the showers. As the old adage goes, it's a better the devil you know than the one that you don't. I was let out of my cell the next evening with all the worldly possessions that I owned which fit neatly into a clear trash bag with room to spare. I owned some prison clothes, a toothpaste, a toothbrush, deodorant, a Bible, a pair of sandals, and a radio. I felt the unbearable lightness of my existence reflected in that bag as it smacked rhythmically against my leg. Good luck, friend Josh. A rather insane acquaintance of mine named Alvin called out from his cell as I passed down the bleak, concrete hallway. Take care, man. I hope we meet again on the outside, I said waving, knowing that I would almost certainly never see any of these people again. Heck, I hadn't even seen my family in over five years. None of them came to visit me anymore. No one wrote me letters or put money in my commissary account or sent me books to read. Well, we're all born alone and we all die alone. I thought to myself as Shay walked by my side. He was breathing heavily as if he had just finished running a marathon. I looked over at his face, seeing the burst capillaries on his nose from years of hard drinking and the squint of his little piggy eyes. There was a slight gleam of intelligence and slyness behind that ugly mug though. Well, amigo, Shay said in his slow and plodding way. I got a sign to go with you. I'll be your ride along, buddy. You excited or what? I smiled faintly at him. There are worse people than you here, Shay, I said. Far worse. I got on the prison bus in my bright orange jumpsuit. To my surprise, I saw the back was nearly empty. There was only one other prisoner in the back. Shay sat with us to monitor us, and we were also handcuffed and ankle cuffed. A chain ran down and connected the two. I looked over at the other prisoner, a black guy with a shaved head. I think he also shaved his eyebrows. I mean, I literally didn't see a single hair on his head besides eyelashes, which he apparently hadn't found a way to shave yet. Sup, he said, and I nodded. Sup. We sat there in awkward silence as Shay plopped down hard on the bench between us. 
It ground like a confused old man. So, what do you know about this place, Shay? I asked. He sucked down half a bottle of coke and then heaved a deep sigh. I don't know much about it, to be frank. He admitted sheepishly. It's apparently brand new, though. They asked us to send a couple people who met a certain criteria. What does that mean? The black guy asked. Shay gave him a serious look. Oh, come on, Timmy, you know what I mean. Hardened criminals. People with long records who tore prisons like some people tore French beaches. I scoffed. There are far worse people than me in prison, I said. Well, they asked for no murderers or people affiliated with gangs, and I don't know why, but maybe it's some new government program. They apparently call it an experimental prison. What about me? Timmy asked. Shay apparently knew what he meant. You're not a murderer, Timmy, she said, his lips forming the faintest twitch of a smile. You never... Well, there was that time my girlfriend got me to drop some acid with her. She went and killed her parents and then we hit the road, Timmy said fondly, his eyes rising as if he were looking at a hovering angel in the far-off distance. You were never convicted of any accessory charges, so it doesn't count, Shay retorted. Oh, it counts, Timmy drawled in a slow, plodding way. It counts, everything in life counts. If I've learned anything in the last 36 years, it's that you can never truly escape anything that you've done, good or bad. I couldn't see much from the prison van. There is a small, shatterproof window on these swinging back doors, but it only gave a fleeting view of what was behind us. I noticed the dark forest stretching out to the horizon over rolling hills. We drove for a few hours, the three of us talked about everything from sports to politics to the recent spate of fatal stabbings at SEC. I felt the van stop. I looked out the back window, seeing more endless trees. I didn't see a single house or car on the road that we had taken. This place is a ghost town, I said. Shay nodded. Yeah, it's dead as Frank Sinatra around here. Shay said, wheezing out a high-pitched laugh at his own joke. This area used to be big for coal mining, but as it dried up and people lost their jobs, they moved away. You know, my grandfather was a coal miner. Good place to build a prison, huh? Timmy asked. If there's no one around, we were cut off by a clinging alarm up ahead. I heard something large moving, probably the gate opening, and then we were inside. I saw the guard towers and rolls of razor wire for a brief moment as the van pulled into an open garage. The darkness immediately blanketed us. The garage door slowly rolled shut behind us. Shay jumped up. Let's get you boys inside so you can take off your handcuffs and everything. He said motioning for us to follow. He pulled out a flashlight from his belt, guiding us through the pitch black. The dim lights and shadows racing across the room like groping tentacles. I caught glimpses of strange objects in the darkness. They looked like medieval torture devices. What is this place? I whispered. My voice echoed far too loudly off the cold concrete floor and walls. Yeah, those look like torture devices on that table, Shay. 
I think those things are thumbscrews that might be a pair of anguish. I pointed to the pear-shaped object with three wicked blades whose points came together sitting on a dusty shelf. The ornate handle had springs connected to it. The object could be forced into any human orifice and when the springs were engaged, it would open like a flower inside the person's body, ripping them apart and enlarging that orifice into a hole. How do you know so much about this? Shay asked, giving me a strange look. He narrowed his little piggy eyes. He continued to fumble with the flashlight, peering around for a door to exit the garage. I looked back at the car and saw the driver just sitting there, his entire body as lifeless and still as a mannequin. I've read a few books, I said as Timmy interrupted us. I see little red lights glowing under that door, Timmy said. Shay focused his flashlight on the spot. Across the room, I noticed what Timmy was pointing at. It was an ancient-looking black door. The wood had started to crack and splinter down the middle. Engraved in silver on the front, it said, Entrance to North Frost Penitentiary. Hello. Shay called toward the door as the three of us moved forward, the steel chains giving my steps a clinking rhythm. Shay reached the antique crystal doorknob. Timmy and I stood next to a dust-covered and brazen bull, its bronze mouth wide open as if it was silently roaring at us. As Shay pulled open the door, crimson light flooded into the garage. Tinted black glass covered the back wall. A speaker button sat next to the window. I looked to my right, seeing a massive sign sprawled across the wall there. It read, Rules for Personal Conduct at North Frost. 1. The COs without faces don't work here and we don't know who they are. If you see one, press one of the buttons labeled Emergency Dispatch that are scattered around the complex. 2. When the red emergency lights come on, hide until they shut off. 3. Do not go into the medical ward for any reason. 4. The warden roams the prison every night at 3.33 a.m. looking for human meat. Don't let him catch you. What is this, a joke? Timmy asked, his face forming into a skull. Ah, uh, well. Shay rubbed the back of his neck, looking like a little obese boy who had lost his parents. I've never been here before, but this is all pretty unusual, I have to admit. A buzzing came from the back of the room and suddenly, a garish, echoing intercom turned on. Please remove their chains and direct them through the door on the left. A female robotic voice said, calmly in a tone as cool as lemonade on a hot day. Your transfer will then be complete. Shay sighed in relief. Good, he grunted. This place gives me the creeps. Bro, you can't just leave us here. Timmy protested. What the heck is this place? Where is everyone? Why is there a room filled with bloody ancient torture devices next to the garage? Shay put up his hands. I'm sorry, son, but I have orders. I'm just a messenger here. I was told to transfer you here, and that's what I've done. He fumbled around his belt for his keyring. He came over and unlocked the handcuffs and ankle cuffs from both of us. I stretched, rubbing my wrists. I was glad to be out of those suffocating restraints. 
Uh, thanks for everything then. I said, picking up my extremely light garbage bag of possessions and heading for the door on the left. Timmy reluctantly followed behind. A sign on this door read, To General Population. But when we got to the other side and it slammed shut behind us, I found a hallway filled with more red emergency lights streaming down. An involuntary shiver ran through my body. I remembered those absurd rules that somebody had put up. What had it said about the red lights? My mind raced for a few moments and then the answer popped up. It said to hide. A man shrieked up ahead, his voice riddled with agony and terror. The hallway split to the right and left and I couldn't see anyone. Timmy and I stopped. Ah, dude, screw this, Timmy said, turning and running back toward the door that we had come through. He tried pulling it open, but it was firmly locked. The scream came again, louder and closer, but this time it was cut off suddenly. I heard someone gurgling like a man with a slit throat trying to breathe. And then everything went deathly silent again. The gray, concrete floor of the hallway had arrows pointing forward on it. There were no doors here. There was nowhere to hide that I could see. Timmy and I reluctantly went forward. As we got to the intersection, we saw the dead body of a man in a brown khaki uniform. His sightless eyes remained open. They stared up at the ceiling, glassy and still filled with horror. Deep gouge marks a bit deeply into the flesh on his back and his arms and chest. His throat had been cut or bit open as well. A spreading puddle of red encircled his body. I saw a dark blur at the end of the hallway on the right. It looked like little more than a shadow. I whispered to Timmy, pointing. We decided to go left immediately. My heart was pounding at this point. I felt like a soldier walking through the no man's land of a war zone. I expected the attack to come at any moment. The hallway to the left had some doors. I sprinted forward as quietly as I could with Timmy close by my side. I read the first door. To medical ward. Uh, no, I whispered, going to the second one. I heard light footsteps behind me. Turning, I saw a creature from a nightmare sneaking up on us and the bloody glow of the emergency lights. Its skin was black and shiny like that of a centipede's. In its general form, it reminded me of a hairless werewolf. It towered over us, its eyes like bone-white cataracts, its claws as long and sharp as a dagger. And yet its face seemed almost reptilian. It had two small nose holes like a snake and a jaw that unhinged and dropped far below its head. I saw rows of blood-soaked fangs. It gave off a low, gurgling growl that emanated from its chest. With a rush of adrenaline and a sense of mortal terror, I pushed through the second door without reading the sign in the front. Timmy was right behind me. I heard him scream as he fell into me. I found myself in a prison dormitory and we weren't alone. As I hit the ground, I saw a white face peering out at me from behind the bunk bed. The man hiding there saw the abomination behind us and got up, screaming and running away. The creature growled, giving chase. In two powerful bounds, it had rushed across the dormitory and grabbed the man by the neck. 
I looked back at Timmy, seeing him groaning on the ground. Blood poured from deep cuts on his back. I grabbed him, pulling him up. Let's go, we have no time. I said, but then I was caught up by the sound of a neck snapping. I looked back, seeing the creature had twisted the man's head around in a circle. It raised the limp body to its massive mouth and severed the head in a single and powerful bite. Get me out of here, man, please. Timmy whispered as I pulled him back out into the hallway. I looked over, seeing another werewolf creature bounding down the hallway, chasing a man in a prison jumpsuit. I had no choice. I pulled Timmy toward the door labeled Medical Ward. With a creak of rusted hinges it opened, we went inside to hide. Maybe there's something in here we can use to bandage you up. I said to Timmy, pulling him down the short hallway toward a room filled with single beds. I didn't know why the rules said to avoid this place. It looked totally empty. Against the back wall, I saw a glass cabinet filled with bandages, rubbing alcohol, band-aids, and other various first aid supplies. I ran toward it. Timmy limped along after me, but still groaning. God, I think those claws went down to the bone, he said. Hey, it's gonna be okay. I said as I pulled out some antiseptic and bandages, adding, Could have been a lot worse. The universe would immediately prove me right. I could hear a slight giggling from under one of the beds. Timmy and I both froze. Two rotted hands reached out, dragging the mutilated body of a young girl behind them. She had patches of garish, black stitches running across her face, hands and arms as well. Dark and clotted red dripped from the sides. She wore a smeared hospital gown and had no eyes. I looked into the empty sockets. They stared back at me like two black holes spinning in the void. As she rose, her giggles became full-blown laughter. A hysterical gurgling like the laugh of a dying person. And then she ran at me. I saw the silver gleam of a scalpel in her little hand. No, I screamed, raising my hands to protect myself. The scalpel came down, slicing my palm. It cut deeply. A cold, burning pain ran up my arm. I repressed the urge to scream. At that moment, the red emergency lights flicked off. Bright, fluorescent lights popped on, flickering and strobing in rapid succession. Timmy ran forward, tackling the undead girl. But I saw more small hands reaching out from under the beds, hands filled with sores and squirming larvae. I could see the bones of their hands through necrotic patches eaten into their flesh. I ran for Timmy, grabbing him and hauling him up. It's time to go now, I screamed, pulling him forward as more undead boys and girls rose up, all with sharp knives and surgical instruments in their little hands. I felt a sudden pain in my leg and looking down, I saw a knife sticking out of my thigh. The empty eye sockets of a little boy's face stared up at me, grinning like a skull. I collapsed onto the ground as we were surrounded. I prayed to God then, knowing that we would die. I prayed that he would forgive me for all of my mistakes, because I was on a fast track to the afterlife, and I would be seeing him in a few seconds. With a sharp cry of pain, I yanked the knife out of my leg, turning it on my attacker. And then a gunshot rang out. 
the nearest undead exploded in a shower of fragment and maggots. I looked up, seeing Shay standing at the door, his pistol raised. Come on, he screamed. Come on, you idiots, let's go now. Timmy and I didn't need any more encouragement. As Shay continued to blow apart the nearest of the undead abominations, we limped and scrambled towards them. My leg gave a shriek of pain with every step. We got out of the medical ward, battered and bruised but still alive. Why'd you come back, Shay? I asked through pained breathing. Shay gave me a frantic look. When I got back out to the car, the driver was dead. His throat was ripped out or something, I don't know. I grabbed his keys and I came back for you too. I don't know where we are, but I'm getting you out of here, he explained. I looked at him in amazement. I had never thought in a million years that Shay would risk his life to save some scumbag inmates. So what's the plan? Timmy asked, sweating heavily, his eyes wild and pained. How are we getting out of here without dying? Shay shrugged. The door locked behind us when we came in, I said, unless we can break it down and get back to the car. We passed by buttons labeled emergency dispatch under glowing red emergency signs. I wondered if we could get help somehow through them. Halt! Somebody cried from behind us. I looked back, seeing a man in a black correctional officer's uniform. He ran towards us, his hand on the radio hanging from his belt. But something immediately seemed off about the figure. As he got closer, I realized why. He had no face. His entire head was just smooth white skin, without hair or any signs of features. He spoke again and the voice seemed to come from all around his body. You must report to the medical ward, the strange figure said. We do not allow injured people in the hallways. Nah, we're fine, Shay said, grinning. You see, buddy, I work for the DOC too. He pointed at the identification clip to his breast pocket. The figure raised his radio to his lips. We have resistance near dormitory one. The fake CO said into his radio before any of us could stop him. Shay ran forward, knocking the radio from his hand. The CO instantly straightened up and whipped out his pistol, pointing it at Shay's torso. He fired and I saw Shay's chest explode in a blossoming flower. No, Timmy said, running forward. I saw a silver gleam in his hand and I realized that he had taken one of the scalpels from the undead Shay had killed in the medical ward. As the fake CO spun to point the pistol at Timmy, Timmy ran into him, stabbing the scalpel deeply into the CO's neck. They fell together with Timmy on top of the fake CO. His body weight drove the scalpel deeper into his white and featureless skin. Blood the color of soot spurted from the wound. The gun went off and the bullet missed Timmy entirely and smashed into the ceiling. The CO's gurgling death rose seemed to come from all around his body. I grabbed Timmy. Get the guns, I said. They're both dead and we need them. He nodded, grabbing the CO's gun and taking an extra mag from his belt. I did the same with Shay's gun and magazine. I pressed the button labeled emergency dispatch as more faceless men appeared far off down the corridor, and then we fled as fast as we could from that hallway, but seeing as we were both in pretty bad shape, 
and wasn't very fast. At that point, I was glad to be alive though. We wandered around the prison, avoiding the faceless CLs whenever we saw them patrolling the hallways. They would radio to each other, their voices always surrounding their bodies rather than coming from their heads, which I found extremely eerie and unsettling. A couple times, I saw men in black SWAT suits with rifles gunning down the fake COs. I wondered if this was the emergency dispatch. Timmy and I avoided them as well and we gave a wide berth any time that we heard gunfire. We passed cells with mummified corpses hanging from the ceiling. We passed by dormitories where the victims of the strange werewolf-like creatures littered the floors, rotting and stinking like roadkill. Occasionally, I would catch a glimpse of another survivor, a pale face peeking out from some hiding spot, but Timmy and I kept pushing forward, looking for a way out. We were in a sprawling gymnasium, sitting down and resting for a few minutes, when we had encountered the warden. We heard a demonic roar from the hallway, a mixing of many strange and human tongues. As Timmy and I sat up quickly, a decapitated body flew into the gym, and a creature from a nightmare followed after it. The body smacked into the concrete wall with a soft and fleshy whack. The warden stood ten feet tall. He had on a black correctional officer's uniform and a leather visor cap. His face looked like it had no flesh. A thick layer of bone covered it with two reptilian eyes peering out from behind slitted pupils. He hissed, a forked tongue shooting out of his gaping maw. His fingers looked like sharp daggers of bone. A smell like old leather and blood arose from his body. Shoot it, I screamed, raising the pistol and firing at its head. The first shot blew off its visor cap, revealing the hairless, reptilian skull underneath. But the bullet only gouged the top of its head. It ran at us with powerful, bounding stabs, covering the distance in moments. Timmy and I fired as fast as we could as it got within a few feet of us. It bounded into Timmy like a freight train hitting a car. Timmy's body went flying and smashed against the back wall with the sound of bones shattering. I slammed another magazine in the pistol as the warden turned to me. We had hit it. I saw. One of its eyes had exploded in a shower of red and vitreous fluid, and its head was bleeding pretty badly. I raised the gun, aiming for the same eye and firing. The warden smacked his hand against his face as if he had forgotten something, falling to the floor. I ran forward, putting the pistol point-blank against his ruined eye before emptying the clip. By the end, he wasn't moving anymore. Oh God, I said, walking over to Timmy. I saw his shattered legs, his broken spine and his snapped ribs. He coughed up red. I'm sorry, Timmy, I really am. His head might have nodded slightly as he died, giving a final death rattle before falling still. I found a ring of keys on the warden's body. In excitement, I ran downstairs and I tried the locked door, and it worked. I went to the van, pulling out the dead driver and starting it up. After smashing through the garage door, I drove it through the gate. It did catastrophic damage to the prison van 
but it got me far enough away before the engine finally gave out. I don't know what kind of prison that is, but I hope that I never see that place again. I remember the first time that I did dope, like it was yesterday. When I sniffed it, it felt like a powerful, relaxing massage flowing down my body like water. I remember running to the bathroom and throwing up over and over, but it felt so good that I didn't even care. I wouldn't be throwing up the next time that I did it though. My tolerance grew rapidly. Within months, the constant sickness became an ingrained fear and eventually, my opioid addiction would take over my entire life. No one ever wakes up in the morning thinking, I really wish I was a penniless, homeless drug addict. No child ever grows up saying that he wants to be a raging alcoholic. No one wants to go to prison, jail, detoxes, rehabs, mental asylums, or graveyards either. But when the addiction takes over, you don't have a choice of what you will or will not do. When addiction screams at you to jump, you only ask, how high? At a certain point, the idea of going without opioids becomes as instinctually frightening as going without food or water. In fact, a lot of addicts would much rather go without food and water than be plunged into the nightmarish, seemingly never-ending withdrawals. An addiction is like having a monkey on your back in some ways. If that monkey was demonic, rabid, and fused into your skin like some sort of sadistic Siamese twin, you know that if you don't do what the monkey says, it'll turn its blood-red eyes to you in fury. You know that it will claw and bite you until you're curled up in the fetal position on the floor screaming, Please, no more. At a certain point, you don't even want to do the drugs anymore, but there's no real question of it. When the disease has progressed to its final stages, people who are in its grips become like an automaton, a machine. You wake up in the morning and the addiction screams, Come, come, it's time. And even though you've just opened your eyes, you go over. You know you don't want to do drugs anymore, yet you find yourself sitting in front of them anyway. And after years of this, you give up all hope of ever having a life where you're not a soulless puppet, until the only way out in the end seems like death. But not me, in my conscious mind I knew that I didn't have a problem, that I just hadn't figured out the perfect way to control my drug usage yet. My delusion told me that there was some grand middle path where I could get high anytime I wanted and then stop whenever I felt like it. I just hadn't figured out the perfect way to stop, but I would in time. Of course, this was insanity. After getting kicked out of my apartment and losing my job, I decided it was time to try rehab again. It certainly wasn't my first time there. I had tried everything before, from prison to jail to rehab to detox to methadone to NA meetings and plenty of other things. Somehow I hadn't figured out the perfect method yet. But because my sickness told me that I wasn't sick, I was convinced it was only a matter of time. Soon I would just quit and be free of this terrible addiction, but certainly not today. It would always have to be next Tuesday or maybe next Friday. Next Friday always seems good and reasonable. 
until it comes and you realize you're still hopeless and on your way to an early grave. Yet this time was also different in a fundamental way, because really at this point, I did want to stop. The party had long ago ended and now the addiction was a full-time job that paid only in wages of misery and death. So I went to detox for the twelfth time. I suffered the same nightmarish withdrawals as a million times before. Not sleeping for days, feeling my heart racing, seeing my hands and fingers trembling, feeling my stomach doing flips as it debated with itself whether it could hold down any food today. And then at the end of this madness, the nurse told me that there were no beds available in their long-term inpatient rehab, which was a place that I knew well, having spent months of my life there previously. So what am I supposed to do? I asked, scowling and furious. I actually wanted to try quitting forever this time and the universe seemed to be laughing at me. I knew they had a quality rehab program and I wanted back in it. I wanted to try my best at actually paying attention when they told me about relapse prevention this time. Detox only lasted 4 or 5 days and that is no way enough time for an opioid addict to recover. Someone who just goes to detox and leaves likely has a 99% chance of failure. The admissions nurse with a face like a wary weasel stared impassively through me. I noticed the small ketchup stain on the front of her white uniform. Well, there are no beds available at our unit, she said. I mean, with all this fentanyl crap and all the drug courts, there's a two-month wait list for a 90-day rehab in our unit now. I looked at her aghast. I'm trying to get rid of a potentially fatal drug addiction here, I said, as if anybody could ever fully get that monkey off their back. People could get sober, yes, but I knew there were always addicts in the pits of their souls and many only got through life by struggling one day at a time. Well, there is an experimental drug rehab a couple of hours away, she said, looking down at a sheet of paper. They contacted us asking for volunteers. They'll cover all the costs, including transportation to the facility. What do you mean by experimental drug rehab? I asked, confused. Is this like some new method of quitting drugs? It's not run by the Church of Scientology or anything, right? She laughed at that. Oh, no, no, it's nothing like that. Apparently, it's a government-run unit. They want to try out new methods of helping people with severe opioid addiction and alcoholism. If you're interested, you can go straight from here tomorrow when you get discharged. I thought about it for a long moment and I nodded at the nurse. Yeah, sure, I said. I'm willing to try anything. Drugs had finally beaten me into a state of submission. I remembered the first time that I went to rehab. I scoffed at their insane 12-step programs and their focus on a higher power. I thought that it sounded wacky, and I was in no way interested in drinking their Kool-Aid. Now I would listen to absolutely anything, try anything with even the smallest chance of working. Drugs had so successfully dragged me down that I was finally in a state of reasonableness. A fairly rad thing for an addict, and one that usually takes many years to develop. A black SUV pulled up in front of the detox unit the next day. I wasn't the only volunteer that they had found, apparently. 
A pretty young blonde girl with ancient, nervous eyes sat next to me, as well as some large guy from Boston with far too many shamrock tattoos in his body and a Red Sox cap on his head. We all sat in the back. The driver had an opaque black window up, preventing us from seeing him or talking to him. Hey, I'm Haley, the girl said, extending a trembling hand. Her pupils looked large and she looked ill at ease. Though I still wasn't feeling too good, I was immediately interested and shook her hand. I'm Jay, I said, not feeling overly conversational. The Red Sox guy apparently agreed. Simon, the man grunted, looking back down at the book that he was reading. I saw with interest that it was the big book from Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you know anything about this place that we're going to? I asked them. Simon just murmured and shook his head. It didn't seem like he wanted to talk. But the girl perked up instantly. Well, the nurse didn't seem to know much, but I read through that the paper they made a sign. Haley said, brushing a lock of her long hair behind her ears. Her perfume reminded me of springtime flowers and mountain peaks. You read the whole thing? I said surprised. I hadn't read any of it. I wondered whether I had made a mistake. She nodded, the faint trace of a smile playing in the corners of her lips. It's some brand new, totally revolutionary addiction treatment the government has developed in response to all the deaths from the recent crisis, she said. And do you know what exposure therapy is? Simon perked up at this, and he pushed his glasses up on his nose. I've read about that, he said in a deep voice. That's a way of dealing with phobias, right? Like if somebody is afraid of spiders, they show them pictures and videos of spiders to desensitize them. And eventually, maybe they put a spider in a cage in front of them. Yeah, pretty much, Haley said, and I frowned. I don't get it. What does that have to do with addiction treatment? Are they going to show us pictures of bodies from overdoses until we change our minds? Because that doesn't work. I already know that I'll die if I don't stop. I think that deep down I've known that for a very long time. Haley just shook her head, bereft of any answers. I have no idea how exposure therapy could apply to addiction treatment. Guess we'll find out when we get there. A couple hours later, we entered a long and winding dirt road. I saw the complex looming out of the top of the rolling New England hills like a knife hilt sticking out of a chest. It was garish. Massive black towers surrounded by electrified fences and rolls of razor wire greeted us as we pulled up to the gate. Smaller wooden guard towers with observation decks like fire watch towers stood at each of the four corners of the square complex. This looks like Guantanamo Bay, Simon observed. He suddenly looked very uncomfortable and nervous. He began shifting his large bulk around the seat. The springs gave an exasperated groan. And then he reached back and gingerly pulled his sweatpants out his rear without any sense of embarrassment. Why do they even need all this razor wire? Why the guard towers? I asked. The driver up front finally rolled down the divider. Stay put, guys, the driver said in a nasally reedy voice. Don't try to get out until they give the all clear. They have snipers trained in this position if you try anything. What? Simon yelled, stunned out of his introspection. What is this, a joke? 
The driver slowly rolled the divider back up in response. I sat there not knowing what to think. A soldier clad in all black came out of a small guardhouse at the entrance. He had a rifle in his hands and the finger on the trigger. He walked slowly over and knelt down. I saw him talk to the driver, but I didn't know what they said. A moment later, he pressed a button and the 20-foot-tall metal gate began to slowly roll to the side. I have a bad feeling about this, I said as he drove us inside. Haley and Simon both looked pale, their eyes wide and terrified as if we were entering a war zone. A garage door opened in the slick metallic black surface of the towers. They looked like giant dark lighthouses looming overhead, except they had no windows and no lights. However, dozens of spotlights were placed to the top of the fences in the guard towers. At night, I figured this place would be more lit up than a football stadium. The driver drove into the garage. A sudden darkness overcame us. The door was unlocked with a clicking sound and he rolled down the divider. Get out, he said abruptly. Now. We didn't hesitate. I pulled open the door and I was still somewhat excited to see this new revolutionary rehab unit. The razor wire and the rifles had given me quite a bit of pause, but perhaps they kept convicted criminals here in a different unit. The more that I thought about that, the more sense that it made. I began to relax. The driver rolled up his window and wouldn't talk to us anymore. The garage door behind him stayed closed. No one came to greet us. I saw a door nearby and dim light came through at the bottom. Figuring that we could find somebody who worked here over there, I walked over and pushed it open. Haley and Simon followed close behind me. Bright fluorescent lights streamed down over a disgusting mold-filled hallway that disappeared far in front of us in a straight line. I saw patches of black mold rising like hair from the soggy floorboards. Splintering doors stood lining both sides of the hallway, some of them hanging off their hinges and others laid out flat on the floor. Ew, what is this? Haley said, a look of disgust crossing her face. Simon pointed to the door. Hey, there's something nailed to it, he said, a piece of paper. I looked and he was right. I quickly walked over to it and I pulled it off. It had what looked like splatters of red across the front. I took it, frowning as I read the yellowed, ancient-looking sheet aloud to our little group. Rules to survive the gray path. 1. Do not sleep in the comfortable room filled with soft moss and poppies. 2. If you see the hobo with a mouth across his stomach, you must kill him. 3. Stay away from the patients in the delirium tremors ward. Anything they see comes true. 4. If you hear the hymns of the needle freak over the speakers, it means they have gotten out and you must hide. Great path. Simon asked, curious, is that the name of this place? If you read the contract you guys signed, you would already know that. Havy said, looking closer at the scrap of paper. Is that blood? She had noticed the dark red stains sunk into the ancient paper. Hey guys, I asked, feeling nervous again. Does anybody know that you're here? Like family or friends or anything? They both shook their heads. My family hasn't talked to me in a couple years. 
Haley admitted sheepishly. Same. Simon grunted and I nodded. Yeah, me too, I said thinking. Do you think that's why they chose us? Because nobody would notice that we're missing. A look of horror crossed both their faces as they stood there. Like, did you even tell any of your friends? Either of you guys? I don't actually have any friends, Simon admitted, rubbing the back of his hair. Haley just shook her head. Actually, like Simon, I didn't really have any friends anymore. My addiction had sent them all away. Heck, I had given everything away. As I looked back, a deep sense of regret and remorse filled my soul. We started walking down the hallway, avoiding the large patches of yellow and black mold that sprouted like bushes from the soggy wood. The smell like decomposing meat and mushrooms filled the area. Haley wrinkled her nose. The hallway turned at a 90 degree angle. It felt like we had been walking down it for at least 15 minutes. It was mind boggling how big this place was. I didn't realize it when we had pulled in but the black towers I saw, they must have extended a few thousands of feet into the hills. Why would somebody build a place this big? Simon asked, looking around with an inquisitive eye. And why would they let the hallways rot and grow soggy like this? It doesn't make any sense. A deep, choking sob cut him off. It came from around the corner. Hello? Haley called out. I grabbed her shoulder, hissing in her ear. Shh, I said. What do you think you're doing? Whoever it is already knows that we're here, she said. She started slowly tiptoeing forward to peek around the corner. A massive, dirty figure ran straight into her, knocking hard into the wall. She smacked her head hard. and made a hollow, bonking sound like a coconut being dropped on a concrete floor. She stumbled and fell to the ground. She started crawling away as I looked up at the abomination sprinting at me and Simon now. Red streamed from a gash on her forehead. She looked dazed and confused, but I had no time to check on Haley. The eldritch creature wore tattered rags around his shoulders and his waist. His head nearly scraped the ceiling about eight feet above our heads. I saw red stains and dried yellow pus all over his skin. Deep black spots were eaten into his flesh, forming deep circular patches across his skin, like the blast holes of a nuclear war. Purplish streaks went out in all directions from the infected wounds, running across his body like polluted streams. He turned his face towards us, and I saw a monstrous creature only glimpsed in the wildest of nightmares. In his entirely hairless face, he had one giant eye. It took up the entirety of the front of his head. It rolled in its socket, the pupil large and glassy. The yellow, jaundiced sclera streaked with bloody red veins that stretched outwards like the roots of a tree. His scarred torso had an enormous mouth running across the area where his belly button should have been. The purplish, cracked lips formed into a snarl, showing many razor-sharp fangs. They curved inwards like the teeth of a shark. They snapped and bit at the air, the entire stomach and chest, rippling and morphing as giant muscles worked furiously under his mutilated skin. An odor of rotted cheese emanated from the creature, mixing with the sickly smell of infection that rose from its decaying flesh.
He made a sound like a crying baby, his enormous chest mouth opening with an ear-splitting wail as streams of dirty tears ran down his filthy body. Simon turned and ran. With a predator's instinct, the nightmarish hobo gave chase, his naked bloody feet slapping hard against the soggy floor of the hallway as he sprinted forward in a blur. Simon frantically tried a random door and disappeared into a room. Roaring, the creature tried to squeeze through the relatively small door. It looked like a cockroach trying to slip through a tiny crack. It worked its body through the threshold, cracking the wood. It smashed its large, scarred hands against the wood. I heard the building shake with every blow and saw deep fissures running through the wall. I turned, looking for Haley. We needed help if we were going to kill this thing. But realistically, how could we possibly kill it without any weapons? Ten feet down the hallway, a door stood open to a room that glowed with a soft blue light. I walked toward it hesitantly, still hearing the cacophony the creature made as it chased Simon. Haley, I whispered sharply, where are you? I saw drops of red leading into the room from when she had hit her head. I followed them like a trail of breadcrumbs. Beyond the threshold, I saw a beautiful scene. Layer after layer of soft green moss covered the floor. From the ground, unnaturally large opium poppies extended up to the ceiling. They swayed slightly, as if a non-existent breeze blew through the room. A sweet earthy smell radiated from their beautiful pink and white flowers. I felt a sense of calmness and relaxation come over me. A sense of tiredness came over my mind, and my eyelids began to droop. And then I saw Haley laying on the ground asleep. All around her large, tick-like bugs scattered and ran. Each was the size of a baseball. They took turns biting Haley at areas of exposed skin, latching onto her and sucking her blood. A few had already grown fat and changed from a jet black to a dark red. I looked in horror at Haley's pale face. No, I screamed, running forward. I began ripping them off of her, a sense of adrenaline coming over me. It instantly banished any thought of sleep. Haley's eyes fluttered open as drops of red flew from the creature's mouths. I ripped them off one by one. After I had gotten nearly a dozen of them off her, she stood up, dripping red from countless bite marks. Her face looked pale and her lips slightly blue. She wavered on her feet, trembling. I thought that she might pass out, and I held her arm tightly. Get out of here, I whisper-shouted at her. The monstrous black tick still circled us, trying to crawl up on our legs and bite us. I kept kicking on them and stomping them. Their bodies exploded under my shoe like a water balloon filled with dark red blood. Haley and I started to turn when a silhouette filled the doorway. The hobo leered at us from inside the room of moss and poppies. He had Simon's head in one of his filthy hands, the long dirty nails of his fingers biting deeply into his white skin. He threw it at us, hitting me hard in the chest and knocking the air out of my lungs. I screamed, looking down at Simon's cyanotic flesh and sightless staring eyes. His blue lips were pressed together as if in an expression of disapproval. I felt more of the ticks trying to climb up my legs. As the hobo began trying to smash his way through the doorway into the room, getting stuck just like he did before, a desperate idea came to me. 
I picked up one of the tech creatures holding it gingerly by its sides. It tried to snap and bite at me like an angry cobra, but I quickly threw it at the hobo's eye. The tick soared through the air in a graceful arc, landing on the hobo's face. Its black, spider-like legs writhed, twisting around the back of his head. The hobo's arms were held back by the door and his body was wedged in the threshold. He screamed as the tick went for his eye. The hobo tried to close the massive lid, but the tick's probing mouth parts punctured through. A waterfall of vitreous fluid and blood streamed down the hobo's face. In a panic, the hobo pulled forwards into the room, taking half of the wall with him. It cracked and fell apart with a sound like collapsing bricks. Haley and I took the opportunity to sprint through one of the newly formed gaps and out into the hallway. Blind, the hobo spun in circles as the ticks surrounded him, crawling up his legs and chest. He smashed himself over and over using his large, scarred hands to splatter their insectile bodies all over his skin. But only more came, and soon he fell down, wailing with noises like a frantic baby under the army of dozens of enormous, mutated ticks. Haley and I ran down the hallway, seeing the rest of Simon's body laying over the threshold of the room that he had tried to hide in. With the final wails of the hobo following us, we fled that pit of horrors only to find that we hadn't gone nearly far enough. We found a staircase and we began climbing. We didn't know where we were going, but we figured if the bottom floor was terrible, perhaps the topmost floor was significantly better. The stairs went up about 15 stories. The rusted rails had fallen off and deep cracks like the fault lines of an earthquake ran through the concrete steps. They looked like they were getting ready to crumble into dust. We opened the door to the top floor and gave a loud shriek of rusted metal. I winced, glancing down the hallway. It looked like an apocalyptic hospital ward. The white walls had yellowed with age and stained with drops of dark and ancient blood. Smashed windows looked on on empty units with rolling beds. Many had pieces of human skin or deep layers of red caking their surfaces. A cacophony of white noise emanated from speakers above our heads. A hissing of static shattered the silence. Haley and I both jumped. And then a diseased, raspy voice began to sound over the ancient speaker system of the hospital ward. The lunatic god stares down black and cold. We eat the bodies of the weak and old. We change ourselves to fit his cries, feeling as our humanity slowly dies. We know that we are dead and weak, and so we all sing the hymns of the Needle Freak. Oh God, not again, Haley whispered, her eyes filled with horror. What's going to happen this time? I grabbed her hand, hissing in her ear. Run, run, we need to get out of the hallway. I said his door slammed open all up and down the hospital ward. I saw dozens of walking corpses slumped forward, shambling and dragging their broken bodies slowly behind them. Some had marks of car accidents, such as the first young man that I saw with pieces of his leg bone sticking out through his skin and a deep gash through his skull. Others looked like they had died of overdoses, some of them still having needles sticking out of their arms. Haley and I chose a random ward, crashing through the door. 
Empty infant cribs stood all around us. Some had tiny red-stained clothes still in the cribs. I saw another door in the back hanging off of its hinges. I ran through, finding myself in a private room. A man stood there without eyes, the empty sockets barren open like two silently screaming mouths. My god, what happened to you? Haley screamed, backing up quickly. I looked at the sign above the door with a growing sense of horror. It read, Delirium Tremors Ward. They kept coming, he said in a dead voice. The spiders crawling on the floors, the baby crawling on the ceiling. My son, he died, you see, in his crib. I was too drunk to check on him at the time. Didn't find him for 12 hours, but here he's... He stopped, inhaling deeply. They're all here. I felt their claws on me. I saw his blue lips as his head spun around to 180 degrees and he showed me a mouthful of needles. A mouthful of needles. He trailed off, clawing at his hair with dirty hands. I had to take my eyes out to stop seeing. I couldn't keep seeing it, I couldn't. Reality is ripping at the seams. The eyeless man continued, his gouged out sockets slowly dribbling red down his cheeks like crimson tears. It's ripping and I have nothing to hold on to now. My son won't stop watching me with those black eyes of his, please, make it stop. As he spoke, I saw something crawling above us in the ceiling. I looked up, seeing the baby. He clung to the ceiling like a spider hanging upside down. His stiff limbs reached forward, dragging himself along and wailing. His head began to spin around until it was completely backwards. The skin on its neck spiraled around in a sickening way. The baby gave a hiss like a snake. Its pure black eyes flew open and it showed, a mouth filled with thousands of black needles that shimmered like obsidian under the flickering fluorescent light. Haley walked forward calmly, putting her hand on the man. From the room full of cribs, I heard shuffling and groaning. The corpses were nearing. Your baby has found a way out, Haley said comfortingly. A door, can you see it? It leads to beautiful rolling hills and open fields filled with flowers. The man's face seemed to slacken. I looked behind us, seeing a dead man approaching. He had black stitches running down his chest and countless scars from the drugs over his arms. Behind him, dozens of more corpses writhed and shambled towards us. We were running out of time. A door, the eyeless man said. I don't. Yes, see it, Haley encouraged him. It's a big door and your baby can go through it and find peace. Do you see it? The man hesitated. I saw a door appearing in the wall nearby, slowly phasing into view. The baby's head finished spinning so that its neck was now hyperextended at 360 degrees. And then it gave a triumphant cry and skittered toward the door like a centipede chasing a prey. Beyond the threshold of the door, I saw the forests of New England. The sun beat down natural and beautiful. Unlike all this horrible, flickering, fluorescent light, I grabbed Haley's hand and ran through the door. It closed behind us with a popping sound. We found ourselves in the middle of the woods. We began walking and discovered a trail which eventually took us to a road. A couple of hours later, we found a town. 
Grateful to be alive, we didn't wonder about the fact that we had ended up five hours away from where we had started. Haley and I have been sober ever since. I don't know what kind of demonic place we were kidnapped and taken to, but I seriously doubt the government knew anything about it. I tried to find out more information about Grey Path and to ran it, but I couldn't find any evidence even indicating the place existed. After what I saw there, though, I have never had an easier time staying sober. Dealing with the horrors and nightmares of Grey Path, seeing the walking corpses and the end stages of addiction, it changed me in a fundamental way. I no longer have any desire to use drugs, and God willing, I will never ever relapse again. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.